What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 23 of the Vast Podcast. I'm Michael, and today I am so excited because we talk with friend of the pod, mentor to the pod, Dr. David Campbell. We talk to him about God's sovereignty, free will, and suffering, among many other topics. We previously did an episode uh, with Dr. David Campbell. I believe it was episode nine called COVID-19, God's Judgment and the Christian Response, which is one of our most listened to episodes to date. David Campbell was born near Toronto and educated at the University of Toronto, Trinity Evangelical School, and the University of Durham in England. He has planted churches in the UK and Canada. He now teaches regularly on the online teaching platform, Theos University, which we are massive fans of and subscribers to and highly recommend. He also teaches on Theos University's degree-granting arm, Theos Seminary. He is an author. A few of the books that he's written are Nightlight, How to Find God in the Midst of Suffering, No Diving, 10 Ways to Avoid the Shallow End of Your Faith and Go Deeper into the Bible, and Mystery Explained, A Simple Guide to Revelation. All those books can be found on Amazon. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, or wherever you are listening to this today. And make sure and sign up for our email newsletter at vast.faith slash newsletter. Hey, do us a favor and rate the show on whatever platform you're listening. Leave a review, share it around to some friends. These things go such a long way in helping us spread the word. Okay, let's get to this conversation that Jake and I had with Dr. David Campbell. Dave, do you want to uh, put your cell phone on vibrate mode? Oh, so I'm sorry. It, uh, yeah, it it's going to... Well, you know who that is interrupting the conversation. It's your buddy, Shackle Fillmore. It's your buddy. Oh, it's Shackleford. Um, just a minute. There. That's done. Okay. Now, I'm feeling All right. Busy. So we're, we want to talk about... Uh, well, I mean, you tell me. Should we talk about God's sovereignty? Would that be an interesting conversation? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, we can start with that and, and see where we go. Is there a good, uh, transitional, uh, Oh, the Holy Spirit, connect the Holy Spirit will provide that. Okay, great. Let's not plan it out too much. You don't have to plan these things. Just be led of the Lord. <laughs> great. Um, how do you want to kick it off with sovereignty? Well, I would suggest seeing as you're the host that you say something like, um, you know, one of the issues I've always wrestled with is the sovereignty of God and how that works itself out in my life. Maybe you haven't wrestled right. with it, but if you haven't, you should have. So you can still say it. I definitely have. And and then we just take it from there and see what happens. And okay, Holy Spirit, great. please help us. Let's do it. I'm here with the legendary David Campbell, who is one of mine and Mike's favorite people in the world and has been such a great influence uh, in my life personally over the last well, six to nine months. And he lets me bug him and text him and call him and ask him all my questions. He tells me that my sermons are crap. And he calls you, calls you son. He calls me son. <laughs> he tells me you need to redo this part and yada, yada, yada. And I'm just so grateful for him. And uh, David, it's good to have you on the podcast for the second time. Thank you. And your sermons aren't crap. So we'll just clear that up. <laughs> Thank you. I was being self-deprecating. Um, I know my sermons are top-notch, obviously. <laughs> well, I'm not admitting to that either. But... <laughs> I'm only kidding. Hey, uh, so today I thought it'd be cool to talk about the sovereignty of God, uh, which is uh, a subject that is filled with some landmines. Um, and uh, in fact, I was on a podcast conversation uh, just yesterday and uh, that particular person was filled with some vitriol towards um, maybe not particularly the subject of God's sovereignty, but some of the subjects um, that flow from it, uh, I guess, just in general, having a, um, a, uh, oh gosh, why has my mind just gone? Uh, a reformed, sorry. It's been a long day already. It's been a long, been a long couple uh, days. It's been a long, a long Monday, Tuesday. 
a reformed theology. So anyway, I thought it'd be cool to open up that discussion. Uh, that's something that I feel like every Christian uh, wrestles with at one point or another um, in uh, their journey following Jesus. So, and then we can let the conversation flow from there. I know there's a couple of things that we want to talk on, which I think will be really interesting. So can you just help us? How, how do we understand God's sovereignty and how should we expect it as Christians and as maybe the church uh, for his sovereignty to play out in our lives? Well, uh, one of the um, uh, things we have to bear in mind when we're trying to understand God and his revelation is that uh, we can try to explain things where God hasn't explained them to us or possibly where it's not possible uh, for God to explain, not because um, the scriptures are irrational. It's just that our minds are not rational enough to understand the nature of God. Um, mm -hmm. Another example would be uh, how it, is Christ fully God and fully man? Uh, and, you know, how do we understand that? How do we understand the Trinity, for instance? It took the early church about 400 years or more to mm -hmm. formulate or come to an understanding of uh, those kind of issues. Um, and, and actually, uh, none of us ever since have, have done a better job than they did. Um, mm -hmm. So... I think when we come to the issue of the sovereignty of God, the other side of the issue is the responsibility of humanity. So we balance um, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Uh, in other words, um, if God is completely sovereign, then uh, we don't have any responsibility at all. Uh, but that's not correct. Um, but if we go to the other extreme, and say, well, we're completely free agents and we can do what we want and everything's in our hands, then that's not correct either. And so uh, uh, when we're looking at uh, when we're looking at uh, understanding two different dimensions uh, that seem on, on the surface in some measure to be in tension with one another, uh, the, the key is that you don't teeter over on one side or the other. Uh, you know, when you were a kid, uh, you played on teeter-totters. And if you got on with somebody... I that's a you, seesaw for the Americans. What was I'm going to go with... I'm going to take seesaw for $1,000. Mm -hmm. Seesaw. There you seesaw. Go. <laughs> uh, well, it was teeter-totters to us, but seesaw, I, can, I get it. But if you got on with a kid that was twice your weight or size, then you were in trouble. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole thing went too much in the one direction. It had to be kind of balanced. And so, uh, I, um, and so it's the same thing with this, that uh, we have to hold two different aspects of truth in tension with one another. So God is completely sovereign. And yet, at the same time, we're responsible for our response to God. Uh, and, and that plays out in the area of salvation, because the Bible says, on the one hand, that God's predestined us. On the other hand, it holds us responsible for the decisions that we make in life in terms of whether we perceive Christ or not. And the, um, uh, from a theological point of view, uh, the approach that, that works in this is, is, is called compatibilism, uh, which means that we hold both truths in tension. Uh, we, don't, we try not to err on one side or the other. And so the Bible teaches that God is, is sovereign, and the Bible teaches that we have free will. Um, but in that holding those two things in tension, what we have to remember is that uh, we are created in the image of God, according to the first chapter of Genesis. And so what that means is that who we are uh, in that we have a, a, a human personality, free will, and so on, uh, is created in the image of God. Uh, we mess the image of God up through our sin and rebellion and so on. It'll be restored in the New Jerusalem, but we're in the in-between now. We're in the, you know, 
we're in the renovation stages. When you come to Christ, the image begins to be restored and so on. But we are in the image of God, which means that, that um, uh, we have uh, uh, free will over our own actions. We're responsible and so on. Otherwise, we would just be robots or puppets or whatever. And God created people who were in his image and who therefore had the ability to accept him or reject him. Mm-hmm. However, in the mix of all of that, the question is, where did our free will come from? It did not originate in ourself. With God, his free will originates in himself. But with us, our free will is only a gift from God. So another way of looking at it is you can say, well, I have free will. And yes, that's true. But guess what? God has more free will than you do. And so um, when you're trying to balance these things out or hold them in tension, you always want to err a little bit on the side of God being sovereign, because our whole human personality, our nature, everything, all the attributes that we have are gifts from from a sovereign, personal creator, God. And if we diminish God in any way, then we've lost everything. Uh, and so um, the... Because uh, everything comes from him. Everything comes from him. And uh, so... Uh, in the two broadly speaking theological approaches, which uh, are the Reformed approach or what's called the Arminian approach, um, mm-hmm. the Arminians, uh, for them, uh, the thing that they tend to be most dedicated to is preserving our free will. And uh, in our Arminian uh, theology, uh, which there, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to be nasty, but there isn't a lot of Arminian theology. But in Arminian theology, um, what it tends to wind up in is a limited concept of God. Because if 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 um, you and I have free will, and it's truly free will, then God really doesn't even know what we're going to do. Because if he knew what we were going to do, it would compromise our free will. And so Arminians tend to wind up in what's called open theism or a limited concept of God. So uh, uh, God... open theism, again, would express that God uh, doesn't actually know the future. Exactly. And and that's not so good for people who believe in prophecy, is it? You know, God doesn't know the future. (laughs) Not by chance that you you or I will. So... um, uh, prophets haven't had a really great record lately, at least in the United. Forgive me, at least in the United States. Um, I, I should put. Wait a minute, Trump hang on. Still <laughs> show up back in office, I'm sir. I'm gonna uh, put the word prophets in in quotation marks, I guess. Um, so, well, not all of them. Some some of them were really, I think, responsible in their response to their unfulfilled prophetic. Well, I, I, uh, I don't think we even understand what a prophet is. I think that's the problem, but that's a topic of another, another podcast. I think we, you know, it's a mistake to see prophets as, uh, Christian, uh, Christians with a crystal ball. Forgive me. I, I'm not trying to be nasty, but if we see prophets as Christians with a crystal ball predicting the future, we don't understand biblical prophecy, biblical prophecy it here I'm not supposed to be talking about, but I am anyway. So you cut me off in a minute. Biblical prop, but in a minute, biblical prophecy is <laughs> biblical prophecy is people calling uh, is is people who call the people of God back to obedience to the Word of God and the law of God. That is at the heart of biblical prophecy. The predictive part of it is usually connected with obedience and disobedience. In other words, it's connected with the call back to obedience to the law. Um, and if you don't obey the law, then, you know, things will not go well for you. But um, biblical prophecy isn't sort of A, B, and C is going to happen in the next election or in such and such a country or whatever. I, I don't really do see you draw Do you draw a, stink, a distinction, though, between Old and New Testament biblical prophecy? I really like Wayne Grudem's definition um, from his work, Systematic Theology, uh, that uh, New Testament prophecy uh, is something that God spontaneously brings to mind. Um, And that's certainly been my own personal experience uh, with some uh, instances and just my observation with um, 
watching other people minister in that gift. I think it's also possible that it could be conflated with some kind of word of knowledge gift as well. Um, that maybe is a little bit more uh, future oriented. And I think there is grounds for viewing prophecy that way. I can't remember what chapter is in in the book of Acts, um, uh, but the prophetic utterance of the the famine, I well, believe it was, yeah. or even Paul's experience that was going to happen in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and that and that is uh, that's one of the rare examples of, of future prediction. Um, I mean, far be it for me to disagree with Wayne Wayne Grudem. He's an out, just an amazing man um, who carries the heart of God and has lived it as well. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and and I don't know you know everything that he has to say in this. I would just say that I think that is true. What you just said is true of the gift of the one Corinthians fourteen gift of prophecy. I'm not sure I would agree it's true of the Ephesians four office of the prophet. So the, the Ephesians mm-hmm. four office of prophet is someone who has a a perception into um, the direction of God's people. Uh, in relation to the compass of the word of God mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, 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 so I think that that goes well beyond the sort of personal prophetic utterances of 1 Corinthians 14, which I think is the charis- charismatic gift of prophecy. Well, I think they're two right. different things. Um, so I, I just put that sort of, you know, yep. um, in there. But um uh, we we diverged from uh, that's my fault entirely. The the top no, I, I, I think that I think that pretty uh, sure I I made you go down that rabbit trail. God well, God is God. Um, you know uh, what I'm saying is I'm reformed in my approach to theology because I believe that everything has to start with a sovereign God. Everything has to start with a personal Creator God. <clears throat> everything that who we are and everything we have and all that we know. And all we do stems out of who he is. And so I don't want to do anything that compromises that. And in, in Romans 8, 29 and 30, you get this magnificent chain of five verbs where God, you know, uh, foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. And I, what I like about that is that, um, that those that, that God foreknew he predestined in other words and he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son so god cannot know someone without also having a plan to implement in that person's life so from all eternity god knew who jake sweetman was and who he intended him to be and god predestined him which means god had a plan in place for his life this this individual that he knew from all eternity he had a plan in place and part of that plan was to be conformed to the image of christ and then uh, having that plan in place he calls jake uh and then when he calls him jake responds and he justifies him and then the last verb is he glorifies him and the outcome of glorification is so certain in the life of a christian that Paul places it in the past tense as if it's already happened. In Hebrew, that's called a prophetic perfect. It's something that is spoken of as having already happened, even though it hasn't happened, because it's so certain to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's why I rest in. That's my confidence in Christ, that at the end of the day, he knew who I was, he had a plan for my life, and he called me. And I did respond to that. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, my response was real. It wasn't the response of a robot. It was a choice, but it was all rooted and grounded in God's eternal plan. So can I put all that together in my limited human brain? No, you know, and, and how that works? No, I can't. But mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to express all of those aspects of truth, whether it be, you know, the calling and predestining of God, or whether it be my response, all those things are real, but I'm going to root and ground them uh, in the personality and the eternal reality and plan of Almighty God, because that is my only hope. 
that's he is he he's everything he's where we come from he is our source of life and i don't want to do anything that would compromise who he is so reform theology that's basically the approach that it takes now did some people overthink it uh they overthought it to the point where they said well therefore god must have eternally damned people see and john calvin never said that he just said that god that none of us deserve to be saved, not not a single person, but God mercifully did save some. He never said he predestined anyone to be damned, but that's overthinking of the whole thing. And uh, um, so I think we just have to rest. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. And we have to live in the things that God has revealed to us and be at peace in those, the rest of it he'll make plain in eternity. And so in that process of God calling me, his a belief in a high view of his sovereignty would have to ordain that God knew how I would respond. Well, yes, because he wouldn't be God if he didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, if God didn't, then you're back to a limited God. Mm-hmm. And, and a limited God cannot give you or I free will in the first place. So. How so? So that's my argument. How, how, explain that to me. How could it, if God was limited somehow? Because if God was, if God was limited uh, and didn't know how I was going to respond, then he would be creating someone outside of his parameters of existence that had independent life outside of God, and then God would be limited. And God would be limited in that he did, he did not know and could not know all that was going to happen. And therefore, he's not God. By definition, he's not a sovereign God anymore. He's a limited God. Um, and uh, it, God, the scripture is clear from beginning to end that God had a plan to to, for instance, restore the garden temple of Eden in the New Jerusalem. Well, God, did God know that or did he not? Well, if God's a limited God, then he's only taking a guess at what may happen. He doesn't really know. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God's in charge from beginning to end. And if he's in charge of, uh, you know, um, the, the way that I look at it, when it says that God predestined me to con- be conformed to the image of his son, um, what was the image? The image was how God created us in the garden before we fell, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it says that in the, his own eternal counsel, before the cosmos was ever created, let alone you or me, that God had a plan for me and you to be conformed or restored to the image of his son. So before we ever fell, God knew how he was going to restore us. I find that pastorally very encouraging. One practical consequence of it is, before you even know you have a problem in your life coming down the pike at you, God already has the answer. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad he does. That's my hope and confidence. So that's how I see it. Uh, so you would see then a really strong pastoral uh, comfort and hope in connection between God's sovereignty and suffering. And and yes, and and uh, you know um, the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval period, uh, there was no uh, people didn't have any confidence as to whether God loved them or not. It was all contingent, you know, on how much money they had and what they paid to the priest and all the rest of it. And so Calvin came along and, and, and said, no, he said, um, it's all by grace. It doesn't depend on anything you do uh, it, in, it, in terms of, you know, you can't create your own salvation and you, you, you know, um, you don't have to give, uh, you know, buy an indulgence off the priest or all these things because God actually has already uh, chosen you. And um, no, no man can, or, or institution or church can interfere with that. And uh, he developed his doctrine of perseverance of the saints, that if God's chosen you, he'll keep you. And he developed that 
partly as a pastoral measure to bring peace to the souls of millions of people who were living in terror of hell and purgatory because they hadn't paid off the local priest. That's a, that's a kind of, and I have lots of friends who are Catholics, so, you know, I'm not trying to, it, it was just the truth of where so much of the medieval church was at at that point. It's very corrupt. Right. No, that's a fact. Yeah. So how do I reconcile God's sovereignty with uh, going through an obscenely difficult time in life? Because I would have to then believe that God foreknew that obscenely difficult time and either allowed it, permitted it, or caused it in some way. Mm -hmm. um, no. And yet I have to believe also that God is good. So how do I put all those pieces together? Well, I wrote a book about this uh, providentially. Uh, called Nightlight. And uh, in the book, um, I collected uh, stories. Uh, there are eight stories in it of people who have gone through terrible suffering. A couple of them, both people, you know, younger than you have died. Um, and yet their testimony deals with how God was with them through, through everything. I think part of our problem is uh, in our modern rationalistic, materialistic world, we've lost touch with heaven or eternal reality. Uh, and this life is everything that there is. And um, we we don't understand that really it's only a gateway to eternity. And, and so Paul uh, looked in his earthly sufferings and saw them as light momentary affliction, you know, and, and the eternal glory was so much greater. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, before he died on his deathbed, people were praying for him. And he said, don't hold me back from the glory. That's what he said. And uh, uh, I know it's, it's, uh, it's hard for, for us. Uh, I, it's hard for me. Um, because, partly because of the sort of society that we live in. Um, but I do believe that when Romans 8.28, which I think is still in effect, uh, says, for those that love God, and in that verse, the Greek phrase, for those that love God, is placed at the beginning, which is not a natural place it should be, um, for emphasis. So it's the promise is not for everybody, it's for those who love God everything works together for good mm -hmm. for those who are called, you know, according to God's purpose. So God can bring good and does bring good out of the worst situation. That's the, the sort of theme that I tried to address in the, in the book. I've got these stories of people and their testimonies <clears throat> and in between I give teaching on it and it's been actually quite helpful to people. Um, I know there's others like Tim Keller's written a great book and Tim Keller's never written a book that isn't great, but Tim Keller's written a great book in suffering. Um, that is a little more theologically pitched. Mine's a little more pastorally pitched, but um, I, I've taken a whack at it and that book's called Nightlight. I mean, I'm not sort mm -hmm. of flogging books here, but I think if you were struggling with the subject of suffering, I think you'd really find that book helpful. Great. Yeah. Nightlight by Debbie Campbell. Where can they get that by the way? Well, you can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or anywhere. Great. Um, so let's connect this idea of uh, God's sovereignty to our freedom. You've obviously already touched on and talked about our free will. Is there any way, by the way, that the Bible explicitly says we have free will, or is that something that we receive implicitly through things like being made in the image of God um, and how the story of God's people plays out over the Old Testament and the choices that uh, God ha seems to have. Yeah, no, I, I, the, the concept of free will is a Western modern theological concept. I think uh, I'm not a philosopher, but um, it's it's not a biblical concept, but it's implied uh, in the sense that, for instance, Adam is held accountable uh, for his sin, Romans chapter five, verses twelve to twenty-one. Um, so it's implied that he has 
the ability to make a decision one way or the other mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in that. Uh, but that, you know, is the case because we are made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the whole story of Genesis in the garden is all about that. Mm -hmm. So when we speak more broadly about freedom in general, um, God has given us a will and we can choose things freely. However, biblical freedom is uh, different from oftentimes our own modern understandings of freedom, uh, which, I, you know, I guess in a culture like ours here in LA and probably all across the US and I'm sure in Canada and uh, many Western places is the essentially the idea of being able to live unencumbered and being able to do what we want when we want. Biblical freedom is quite different to that, would you say? Yeah, and I think this is a, uh, uh, apart from anything else, a nice segue into my flogging yet another book I, well, I've written but it isn't quite published yet on the subject of freedom. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, what I want to say is that, uh, our concept of freedom, uh, and I'm, when I say our, I'm talking about Western Christians. Let's talk about American or Canadian Christians. Let's say, um, our concept of freedom has been kind of tainted or affected by political realities so that we view the idea of freedom as primarily a political reality. And then we put a kind of a spiritual glaze on it. Uh, and then we justify certain actions as representing our freedom in Christ, whereas it has nothing to do with our freedom in Christ at all. And I think it particularly of the idea that Christians should be out there demonstrating for the right to do this, that, or the next thing. Because fundamentally, we follow the one who had every right in heaven and earth, but gave every right up on our behalf. Um, and so therefore, uh, and it's walked out, for instance, in Paul's life and letters, uh, as well as the Gospels, we are those who give up our rights to serve others around us. So... Um, if we're, if we're commanded by a wicked government to, um, you know, worship idols, let's say, then we say, no, we won't do that. That violates the law of God, and we're prepared to take the consequences. Um, our response actually isn't to overthrow the government. It's to say, well, then, you know, I'll die for my faith, um, which is what Christians have done throughout the centuries. Um, but uh, the the uh, uh, when Paul wrote Romans chapter thirteen, which talks about submission to the authorities and the paying of taxes and the honoring and so on, you have to remember he wasn't talking about you know Joe Biden, let's say an example, mm -hmm. who you might disagree with, but. Um, you know, I mean, he's not a horrible man. He's not a nasty man. Uh, he's not a, a demon-possessed man or anything like that. But Paul was writing about a very nasty demon-possessed man who was called Nero. And he, he had a, a habit of coating Christians with tar and setting them alight in the Colosseum in Rome. And yet Paul says, obey the authorities that God has put in place. Um, that's who he, he, he's talking about. So, um, so that kind of throws a wrench into the whole way that we look at things. Um, it's why I've written a book about it, because we have to understand what, and I think as Christians, and I haven't got a chance, I'm, you know, obviously in, in, in a, a couple of minutes here, I'm not gonna, I don't have the forum in which to explain adequately everything I believe, but um, we have to reframe our minds so that we have the mind of Christ. So that when we come, to issues where we feel as Christians pressured in an increasingly secular society by government or other forces to do this, to do that, to do the next thing. Um, when is it appropriate to stand up for our own quote unquote freedom? And when is it actually more appropriate to lay down our freedom 
on behalf of people around us. And so we've had, you know, in this sort of pandemic environment, some really good examples, I think, of that, where mm -hmm. there's a mask mandate placed in effect by government. And you see people on the one end that you'd think that um, we were all going to be taken out and, and shot by a firing squad that instead, actually, they're only asking us to wear a mask when we go into Walmart. Uh, the question is, the question isn't even, you can come back and say, well, I don't think it's really effective. You, you know, you might be right. Maybe it isn't effective. When we come through all this, we might discover that those masks that we've been wearing never did anything anyway. Um, I mean, I got COVID a few weeks ago while, I, you know, everybody was wearing a mask and it, it just didn't work. So, but that's not really the issue. The issue is, what about my unsaved neighbor? What about my friend who's very fearful? What about what Paul calls the weaker brothers and sisters? That's who I'm supposed to cater my uh, life toward. So if, if I terrorize my unsaved neighbor who, you know, is a very fearful person who has maybe has all sorts of irrational beliefs about COVID. You know, they think that if you get a parcel in the mail, you can get COVID from it. I mean, they're, they're right out to lunch when it comes to that. But oh. they're my neighbor for whom Christ died. And um, if I refuse to wear a mask and walk into their house, then what is ever my chance going to be of witnessing to the Lord Jesus Christ? I've shot it completely. Just because I don't want to wear a mask, as the government's told me to. See, I think that's where uh, we need an adjustment uh, in our thinking. Uh, and we need to orient our behavior as Christians when we, when we tackle these issues toward the impact of our life on the people around us. And if you read Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, where Paul talks about how these issues worked out in the church. And Paul says, okay, there's absolutely nothing wrong with eating meat. But um, if I'm going to make my brother stumble, I won't do it. And you can carry this on, for instance, the discussion of alcohol in the church and say, um, okay, I don't see anything wrong with taking a drink. But if my neighbor or friend or others in church are coming out of alcoholism and if my taking a drink, they think, well, they can take a drink. And all of a sudden, they're right back uh, in alcoholism again. Well, what am I going to do? I'll give up something that actually for me is fine because it impacts negatively on my neighbor. And so that's why I'm trying to say, uh, I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm just trying to say we need to, you know, the whole concept of freedom in the Bible is actually we're free to serve. We're freed from something, which is the condemnation of the law and the judgment of God. But freedom also has a purpose. It's not just, well, you're free to do anything now. Freedom has a purpose. And the Bible applies it in a whole pile. I've applied it, you know, in terms of our relationships, say, to our unsaved neighbor or the government. But what about marriage? The Bible applies restrictions on freedom to marriage. And in, in my interpretation, actually more restrictions on the husband than, than on the wife. Because the husband, the wife in the Bible is never, never once in the New Testament is a wife told to agape her husband. Respect her husband, yes, but not agape him. Only the husband is called to agape the wife. That means the husband is called to lay his life down. Well, that's a severe restriction on freedom. And you can work this out in all aspects of social life, whether it's employers, employees, parents and children, um, leaders of the church, members of the church. Uh, our relation to government and so on. Um, in every one of those situations, God calls us to walk in a restriction of our freedom for the greater good of the gospel. And uh, we are a submitted community. Christians, we are free from sin, but we're not free to do whatever we want. Libertarianism is totally at, at opposite to Christianity. And I would take by that um, Ayn, Ayn Rand, for instance, the writings of Ayn Rand are the total polar opposite of Christianity. Uh, and yet there are many Christians that read the Bible in one hand and Ayn Rand in the other. And I think 
that's deception. Uh, it's Who's it, just as bad as the reading the Bible in one hand and Karl Marx in the other. That's a deception as well. Who is Ayn Rand? Well, you need to find out because uh, she wrote a book called Atlas Shrugged. And, uh, uh, and that book has a profound influence in modern American political life. Uh, a lot of people have read her, uh, but even the people that haven't um, are influenced. It's the glorification of the strong individual who is free to do what he want, he or she wants. Mm-hmm. It, you, you'll find it in certain members of the United States Senate who are in the, on the Republican side. And I, I'm not endorsing the Democrats by any means. Uh, I'm just saying that every political viewpoint has problems attached to it. And so, you know, Christians who enter into politics, God bless them. I, I have some friends that are. It's a thankless job. And it's extremely difficult to keep your bearings spiritually in the midst of, you know, that kind of environment. So, and I think aren't there occasions though when, when uh, defending a a political freedom is actually the more sacrificial thing because maybe it's unpopular. Uh, to do, and in aren't there instances historically that show that that has come at yep. great cost? No, and, and yes, I agree. For instance, in the fight to, to, for the abolition of slavery, um, which was led by Christians, as you know, uh, but the the idea there is that we're advocating for other people. We're advocating for those who can't advocate for themselves. Christians should always be there to advocate for the most defenseless. That's why. It's impossible to be a consistent, God-loving Christian and endorse abortion. It's impossible. Um, the unborn are the, the most defenseless of all, and we should be their greatest defenders. We should be prepared to go to prison if necessary, defending the rights of the unborn. It's the problem I have, Jake, is when Christians are defending their own rights. You know, they're out there saying, well, this is what I want. You know, nobody's going to tell me to do this, that, or the next thing. So I think that the, the what drove, you know, William Wilberforce and people like that was uh, uh, a horror at uh, uh, the realities of slavery and how opposed it was to God's character and his law. And uh, they were prepared to risk their own um, advantages in society and in life on behalf of those that couldn't fight for themselves. I think that's a worthy cause. Yeah, absolutely. What about when I'm not, I can't, it's hard for me to go all the way with you to the notion that a Christian should never fight for a right that they benefit from, because I think that there are rights that we benefit from that all of society benefits from living in a, uh, uh, in the kind of society that we live in, in uh, the US and Canada, um, pr- promotes and provides so much opportunity for people um, that is something worth standing up for. And please hear me, I'm not talking about wearing a mask. You know, I, I haven't met that Christian, by the way. I've yet to meet the person who, who, absolutely refuses to walk into their neighbor's house with a, without a mask on. To me, that seems like a caricature. And I don't think you're putting it forward intentionally as that. But it's funny, you know, you being in Canada. So we're here in America, right? And we look at uh, a lot of the stuff that is put forward on um, on social media in Australia. And we go like, wow, Australia looks kind of nuts. And then I talk to all of them. I'm Australian, and so I have a lot of connection to people in Australia. Like, oh, yeah, it's it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's maybe the same view. And all that to say that there is wacky stuff happening, and there certainly has been wacky stuff that happens in America as well. I don't think that that's the, I don't think that's the normal person's view, though. Um, they might view the mask thing as a, as a, a point of precedent for a larger conversation, whether or not that's founded and, and right, uh, 
is a whole nother discussion for which I am very ill-equipped because I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And so I, I don't go down that rabbit hole. Um, and I completely agree with you uh, on the whole when it comes to the way. Yeah, well, through these let, things. let me say, but I, yep. well, let me just say, let me give an example. So for, uh, when I think of, um, when I think of people who were defectors from uh, uh, the communist regime in Soviet Union, they are, they're defecting in a way that is beneficial to them, sure, because like nobody wants to live under that. But it's also beneficial to the larger society as a whole, because society doesn't flourish under certain kinds of law. And so sometimes is it not proper for a Christian to defend a freedom if it means the flourishing of the society? Yeah, so, yeah. And, uh, absolutely. Uh, that's all what I'm saying. Um, uh, because if your motivation is on, is on behalf of other people uh, and you want to see as close a reflection of God's standards as is possible in your own country, then in a democratic system, you want to advocate for that. That's the role of Christ right. Christians in politics. I completely agree with you. Um, okay. But we, I, I, you know, like we have seen a lot in this country of, um, I think, Christians who behaved in some very ignorant ways uh, in response to various restrictions. Uh, and, uh, you know, for instance, churches being restricted in their ability to meet um, and uh i've had all sorts of had all sorts of messages over the last couple of years from well canada's turned into a communist country or something if people are you know it's stupid really uh because uh you know and again i don't want to generalize but um i i i, I fail to see uh if if a government calls a church if, if a government says well the churches can't meet for the next you know, three months, let's say, because of public health measures, but they apply that standard equally to other areas of society, then I don't have a problem with that. Um, mm -hmm. As Christians, you know, uh, it, it's unfortunate, but we want to contribute to the greater good. It's where um, government says, well, everybody can meet, but not the church. That's where I have a problem. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, we have a very vocal number of people in the Christian community that kept their churches open in spite of government restrictions, they even invaded communities holding all sorts of rallies and so on with people um, and uh, uh, it gave a terrible witness to Christ, terrible witness to Christ. Uh, I mean, churches were prosecuted, then they put themselves in some martyr-like mode and as if they were in Russia in 1950 or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm I, I'm very distressed by that. I think I think that I I've not uh, 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 you know I'm not aware of any churches in this country, being Canada, who defied those kind of restrictions that have had any kind of positive salt light influence or had any justification for doing that at all. And and if they get fined and shut down by the police, then I think that's that's their own that's their own fault. You know, mm -hmm. I don't have any sympathy for that. Uh, the rest of us, representing Christ, get a bad name by a small minority um, who are. Standing. Is there something to be said about so with this kind of stuff? Because I do think that there are there there's reason to. As a Christian, I'm passionate about truth, and I don't I don't feel particularly motivated to uh, go along with everything just because that's what I'm being told to do. Maybe that's just the rebellious streak in me. And particularly in Michael, I mean, he's out of control. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> I haven't worn a mask all of COVID, actually. <laughs> uh, I actually hate that we're using mask as the example, because to me, that just, it just seems like yesterday but maybe it will come back one day <clears throat> um you never know well, it's, but it's not yesterday here anyway well it's not um, technically yesterday here but man it sure kind of does feel like it in terms of the way people are living i just um, i just use that as an example because 
it's a kind of a somewhat inconsequential thing that mm-hmm. people get is the British had this great phrase, they get their knickers in a twist. You know, <laughs> people think that that's the greatest assault on liberty since, you know, the, the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor or something. And I, I mm-hmm. think it's absolutely ridiculous. It, it just reflects on the self-centered uh, attitude, you know, in, in our culture. Um, so I'm just appealing for the fact that I'm, I'm just saying um, it's what I try. It's what I try to do in this book um, is may is make a case for what is what does the Bible mean when it uses the word freedom, right? Because right. it is not what the average person in the United States, for instance, thinks of when they hear the word freedom. There, there is an overlap, but there are some serious distinctions. And so we're called to uh, understand and walk out the freedom that God has given us in our servanthood and even the giving up of the external exercise of our freedom because we always have our internal freedom, which no one can take away from us. But if we have to give up some of the external exercise of it, in order to win people for the Christ, for Christ, like Paul said, I've become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. He gave up, whenever he was in a circumstance, he gave up a measure of his of what he would have done otherwise. You know, he didn't sort of say, well, I'm free, I can do what I want here. No, he said, well, all right, you know, when I'm in the Jewish community, I'll conform to certain standards simply because I don't want to offend them. I want to win people to Christ. When I'm out in the Gentile community, I'll behave in a certain way because I don't, I, you know, I don't want to offend them. I want to win them to Christ. And so I think on that note, what is worth noting is that a lot of churches, if you want to use Jew and Gentile as the analogy, are, you know, when it comes to responding to particular things that go on in society, our church is made up of a lot of Jews and Gentiles mm-hmm. <laughs> with a lot of, so we've, we've been decidedly quite apolitical on mm-hmm. a lot of the things because uh, you lose either way. You do. And so we've just had to keep calling people back to maturity of response, yep. managing our own emotions. And we've tried to provide uh, uh, the most options for people in terms of how they want to come and experience church to their level of comfort. Um, and so I do think that there's there's nuance and middle ground uh, to this. But I think, too, there's a couple of things I want to say. Number one, it seems like you're saying that depending on the the subject in question and how consequential it is to the liberty of the oppression of the people that de- is a determining factor in how bold Christians should be in their stand for or against whatever the subject is. So that's one thing we can talk about that. And then the other thing too, is there, is there something to be said about when, when it comes to, you know, r- responding to, um, to things that, maybe don't seem to be pure or uh, that have, uh, I don't know, maybe there's just not an entire truth. And I'm just, I, I want to make it really clear. I'm just moving away from COVID right now. I'm thinking more like just, who knows? The world's crazy and anything could happen, mm-hmm. right? And and nothing is guaranteed in terms of what life can be like. So um, is there something to be said about like, wise as serpents, innocent as doves, you know, in our navigation of just the complexity of life and living in, at this point, a post-Christian culture, which does not, not only does it not celebrate Christianity, but it also in many respects denigrates Christianity and the and a lot of the ethics that come along with Christianity. And so we're going to have and hold a lot of unpopular opinions. It doesn't seem outlandish to me that some of those unpopular opinions are only a few years away from uh, even being unlawful opinions or unlawful practices. Um, And so is there something to be said about, you know, maybe we don't go placarding in the streets, but there's a certain level of wisdom that we need to apply and how we navigate that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, um, we want to uh, advocate for, uh, you know, policies, for instance, in society, which are going to be truly beneficial to people. Uh, so some of the trends that we see in, in society, uh, which are really damaging to people, but which the world thinks is true freedom, but it isn't really, 
Um, we do didn't want- some of that just happen in Canada recently with policies around um, counseling. Yeah, and it's a very it's a it's a, it's a very great concern, uh, actually. Um, uh, how it works out is another matter, because it was put in place for, I think, um, political effect without any thought to what the consequences might be. Um, Could you expound upon it? Are you comfortable talking about it? Well, uh, it's the idea that if someone is, say, gay, lesbian, transgender, whatever, that um, it's actually illegal to counsel them that they can change their behavior orientation. Uh, Question is... um, So not just orientation, but also behavior. The behavior, yeah. Uh, And so... Um, how is that going to play out uh, in in the UK? I was in a discussion with a, a church involved in your movement, C3, yes, yesterday, actually, on the same subject. Um, there's some legislation in place, but there's all sorts of safe, safeguards, as I understand, around it, so that, you know, pastors counseling people is, is outside of the... Um, realm of anything that this would cover um i see so you know i think for a christian you know we want to to say you know you you, on the one hand you you feel that you want to have a right to be you know to to a certain lifestyle um Mm -hmm. on the other hand we want to say you know actually uh even though you feel you want to have the freedom to do that it really isn't going to be helpful to you uh, in other words, we're not coming down on them like a ton of bricks because we despise them. We actually have compassion because we see the way they're going is not is going to be dysfunctional and destructive. So our motivation is right. Um, and I think we should always be advocating for those things in a, in a free, you know, democratic political system. We, we should advocate for those things as best we can. Um, but I, and think, we should- I, I think that Christianity, in my opinion, is at its strongest when it's actually countercultural. Uh, and I think that when I agree. Christianity gets kind of melded into the mix of society, it becomes, you know, institutionalized and uh, um, kind of neutered. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, in the worst example, you get something like the medieval Catholic Church. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, the you know, Tertullian, the great one of the great early church leaders said, made this statement. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So mm-hmm. where, where Chris, Christians triumph in an ironic way through the laying down of our lives. And mm-hmm. uh, if we are forced into a minority position in society, all I'm saying is mm-hmm. it could be a blessing in disguise. It may involve suffering and persecution and restriction of our outward liberties. But... Um, that's where the church is strongest. And uh, I agree. And that's where I feel like I'm maybe seeing something a, a little bit differently is I, I, I feel like to be Christian is to be inherently and a defender of truth because the martyrs died defending the truth that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Right. And so when I look at, you know, an example like a Jordan Peterson at his university and gets fired because he refuses to, what am I? Do I have this right? He refused to abide by the um, twenty, like twenty-four, twenty-six different pronouns. Pronouns, right? Yeah. right? So I'm not going to do that. And so he either quit or they fired mm-hmm. him or whatever. That's just an example. To me, it is an it is an untrue thing to buy into that and to say, okay, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go along with it, right? And I, I don't know. I, I'm a I'm a relatively young person, and again, I'm I live my life pretty happy. Like I wake up pretty stress-free. I'm not worried about the future. I believe in the sovereignty of God to go back to the start of our conversation. I'm a pretty hopeful person. Um, and, uh, so I, you know, I don't, I, I just say that as kind of like a, um, a caveat, like that's how I generally live. Oh, I, I think Jordan Peterson is a very courageous man. It's my, unfortunately it's my alma mater. I hold two degrees from the university of Toronto. And I think it's a disgrace. Um, Well, but this is the thing, right? So like, I think a lot of people's response with COVID stuff is similar. I know it sounds insane, but I think in their view is that they're standing up for something that they think is true. 
Um, and I can disagree with their methods and trust me, I do. Um, but on principle, I understand what's going on in their head because, um, uh, I, I feel a, a responsibility to stand up for things that are true as well and to not abide by things that are not true, i.e. no, I'm not going to go along with the 26 gender pronouns. Um, and so I, and I just, to me, that seems like it comes part and parcel with being a Christian because and, it's advocating uh, on behalf of other people. Advocating on behalf of other people, but inherently along with that, that requires me to do something that requires some nuancing of Romans 13, because all of a sudden I'm not submitting to government authorities. Uh, but I would say it's because I'm refusing the bow, the needs of the idol of, uh, of gender ideology. Well, right. But the, the whole idea of Romans 13 is that um, God has created an order. And uh, he has put human government uh, mm -hmm. in place because bad government is better than no government. Uh, so human government is imperfect. I mean, the book of Revelation displays that. And yet God has still ordained it. Um, mm -hmm. But it's placed underneath God. And so where right. human government usurps uh, God's prerogatives or leads a nation in a wrong direction, in a direction away from, the, from God and who he is, then mm -hmm. that will fall under the judgment of God. But what God is saying is that, um, uh, you, you know, so that our, 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 our obedience to government is never equivalent to our obedience to God. But right. we do want to uphold. We're not anarchists. We want to uphold right. civil institutions yes. of government because they exist for the betterment of every member of society. I mean, if I think army, that's a really important distinction. Yeah. If the army didn't exist or the healthcare system didn't exist or the police didn't exist, where the heck would would we be? You know, it would be anarchy. It would be a catastrophe for everyone. Um, Could not agree more. So. You know, it, are those institutions imperfect? Yes, they are. But they're better than if there was nothing. Even in the Soviet Union, which is a terrible system, um, when it exploded or imploded back, you know, about 30 years ago, um, mm -hmm. it was succeeded by a period of complete anarchy or near complete mm -hmm. anarchy, which was worse for the average person. The only people that profited were a very few people. And uh, so that's not... You know, mm -hmm. individual independence as an ultimate right is not what Christians are after either. We want mm -hmm. a society where everyone, is, especially the most defenseless, are cared for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really important distinction. The reason I press on it and I kind of have taken my time to develop this conversation is because I think when COVID is the is the a primary example, I don't want people to run away with that going, oh, we should just do what the government says mm -hmm. no matter what. Right. Because with COVID, I agree that there should be uh, certain degrees. <laughs> well, it's it's all about it's it's about the I, I, the tone. You know, you said the wise as a serpent, innocent as doves. Right. It's, I think a lot of it, at least what we've seen in America, is this very brash yes marketing campaign for the people. Who it's are off putting taking a stand. Yeah, it's the it's kind of gross. Yeah. Like, and I, I, we're on that page totally. Um. You know. Well, government is intended to serve the people in the purpose of God, the same way a husband is intended to serve his wife. Can that be abused and corrupted? Yes, absolutely it can. Is that acceptable to God? No, it isn't. Um, but how Christians find their way in that, I mean, Jesus was called before a man who was absolutely terrified that he was there to overthrow his government. Right. And Jesus' response to that was, my kingdom is not of this world. Not of this world. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, yeah. But actually, he said, I come to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate, who was mm -hmm. postmodern 2,000 years before postmodern. <laughs> what is truth? What is truth? That's <laughs> uh, incredible. Uh, that it's not an accident because critical theory, yeah. social justice theory, is rooted in ancient Greek paganism. And I mean, I've, you know, I cover that as well in the book. But... Uh, so it's not really. Oh, do you really in your freedom book? It's not. Yeah, it's not really accidental at all um, mm -hmm. that 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 he said that. But actually, um, what Jesus said is the truth will make you free. There we go back to freedom. That the truth of who we are in Christ is a more powerful force in human history. And 
I trace this back to Acts 17, where Paul goes to the Areopagus, and I think there was a reason why he went there, which you have to buy the book to find out. I haven't got time to explain it. But um, th there's a reason why he went there. It was to destroy the whole mindset of fatalism behind uh, the culture that underlay Greek and Rome, Greece and Rome. And, uh, and he did it. He started that day uh, and, and proclaimed freedom in Christ. And mm -hmm. that freedom ended up in slavery being abolished and all sorts of, of positive things. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, a, it's an incident. But there were a lot of Christians who died in the process. The truth is more powerful. That's the most powerful weapon that we have. It's more powerful than any army in the face of the earth. I mean, wars and it's worth fighting for. Communism was triumphant. We, you know, when I was when I was young, we thought the Russians were going to send nuclear weapons, and we were all going to die, and we were all scared. But where is it today? It's gone. You know, in Russia, it's 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 gone. And uh, but the 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 truth of Jesus Christ has still remained. That Hitler is gone. But Christ has remained, you know, so the truth is actually far more powerful sometimes than we realize when we feel we're a little small minority. Um, actually, we're part of the most powerful army that ever existed. It just doesn't look quite like human armies do. I Yeah, no, it's so good. And th that's why I can have flexibility in my thinking, even when I look at certain methodologies and it, to me, some of it is distasteful. In principle, I understand what they're doing. Um, and uh, I have a certain level of respect for for it, um, even though it's not how I would go about it. And it very well may be informed by things that are actually false, not things that are actually true. And that's why I think Christians have a responsibility to really know truth. And you, I don't think Christians can be held captive to a party because as soon as you're held captive to a party, you're immediately choosing to turn a blind eye to uh, to nuance and to um, to truth from the multiple angles from which it needs to be looked at and understood. So, but I, it's, I just want to to me it was important that we parse that out because I do want Christians to feel a responsibility for, and I guess a permission would be the word to. Um, to not just take everything in stride all the time, but sometimes it's okay to maybe push back a little bit, um, whether we're talking 26 pronouns or whatever other examples might come our way in the future. <laughs> yep. So David Campbell, we very much appreciate your time. You are an absolute gift to us and we love you. And I love that you're investing in us. Thanks so much for helping us grow. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. It's a joy. Mm -hmm.